Before we get into this episode, we wanted to let you know that registration is now open for our Junior Fellows program. Since 2013, the Theopolis Institute has been training imaginative, courageous Christian leaders to meet the challenges of our time. We have erected scaffolding for the work of rebuilding the house of God. And this summer, we are making it easier for you to join this band of dedicated leaders when we inaugurate our revised Junior Fellows program. We are admitting up to 30 men and women as 2019-2020 Junior Fellows. We are going to meet for two weeks in July and then one week again in January 2020. Junior Fellows will learn how to read the Bible, master the fundamentals of liturgy, and engage with critical cultural problems and thinkers. Each day will be punctuated by worship and psalm singing. For more information and for registration, there is a link in the show notes, and you can also go to theopolisinstitute.com, click on Events and Junior Fellows Program. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the Content Manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to continue his thoughts on the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob in Genesis 27. He's going to be looking at five pairs that are given by Isaac to Jacob and how Jacob is a type of Christ. He's also going to discuss how Jacob would have been blessed anyway, and Rebekah wanted Isaac to repent and for Jacob to get the blessing in the proper way. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We had gotten in this chapter to the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob, thinking that Jacob is Esau. We had worked through this whole narrative where we have rising tension in the passage, which kind of displays for us the rising tension in Isaac, because Isaac knows deep down inside that he's doing wrong, and so does Esau. And both of them are going to be caught out, but they're going to react differently. But I think maybe we can get a running start by looking at the actual blessing again in verses 28 and 29. And we can pick up here, review, and move forward. We have five pairs of things that are given by Isaac to Jacob. First of all, the first pair is the heavens and the earth. So may God give you from the dew of the heavens, from the fat of the earth, much grain and new wine. May people serve you. May tribes bow down to you. Be great one over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who damn you damn. Those who bless you blessed. Five pairs there. Heaven and earth. An abundance of goods from above and from below. You go to the book of Deuteronomy. You find this. Moses says the land that you're going to is not like the land of Egypt where the water comes up from the Nile River and you use your foot to push a little pump to run it through the irrigation canals, but rather the land that you're going to is watered by the dew of heaven and you will experience the fat of the land. So this is something that comes to pass. This is, in part at least, the covenant blessing. Now, it's not the whole covenant blessing, and I mentioned that before and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. This is not exactly the total covenant blessing here, and we'll have to reflect a bit on why it's not. But this much we see here. Heaven and earth, 
conspire together to bless my son. Then he gives him bread and wine. Bread and wine remind us of fruit trees and grain plants, the third day of creation. Later on, every Israelite has his vine and his fig tree, his field and his vineyard. He's told not to plant grain crops in his vineyard, keep them separate. This is a picture of the entire world. God has made an entire world, and God's entire world is glorified by seed plants and fruit trees on the third day. The world's covered with it. Now, more plants come into existence later on, but initially, that's a picture of God's whole world. So, the image of God has a whole world. And the symbol of your whole world is your vineyard and your field. And so, if you have a vineyard and a field, then you're like God. And you've got a world of your own, and you're being like the image of God, and you're being blessed. So that's a blessing here. Much grain, much new wine, lots of grapes, lots of bread. And then, peoples and tribes bow down to you. This is dominion over the Gentiles. We can't know exactly what was in Isaac's mind or how Esau would have heard this. Esau probably would have said, yeah, I'll be in charge of all these people and they'll do what I want. But the true fulfillment of this is that the Israelites would dominate the Gentiles in a spiritual sense and would be lawgivers to all the nations. Because it says, when the nations see you, they'll say, what nation has such mighty and just laws as these? Could we have laws like these? Could we make our law code to be like yours? Can we learn from you? Who's your king? Where would you get these laws? Who taught you about this stuff? Yahweh did. Who's Yahweh? Well, he's our God, but he's also a universal God. Really? Tell us more. So, the peoples would come and be grateful to the Israelites and view them as leaders. And that does happen, occasionally at least, in Israelite history, as in the days of Solomon. Be a great one over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. The brothers and the mother's sons rule within the covenant. Rule outside the covenant, peoples and other tribes. Rule within the covenant, brothers and sons. Well, the question that comes up here, it says, your brothers is plural. And then as far as we know, there was just Jacob and Esau. Were there any other brothers out there? Well, there might have been. And we're just not told about them because they don't factor in the text. Maybe Rebecca had other children. Maybe Isaac had concubines and there are half-brothers out there. We just don't know. You read about Ishmael and Isaac and then you find out later on Abraham has six more children by Keturah. They show up later on in history, but there's not a whole lot about them. Or this might just be a formula, a formularistic statement that's typecast. Be a great one over your brothers, plural. Maybe implying nephews and nieces or some more extended thought. Hard to know. There really is not any evidence in the Bible that would give us an answer to that question. What was of interest to us is this word great one. Gibir. Gibor is the great ones before the flood. Gibir. This word is only used here in this passage, here and in verse 37. The feminine form of it, Gibira, means great lady, and it's used when we talk about the queen mothers in Israel. That's the word used for the queen, especially the queen who is the mother of the king. His mother was so-and-so. 
she was the great lady. So there's an idea of rule and domination here, but it's so interesting that this word gibor is used. Because it's not used very much in the Bible, and I've got it down here in 6.4. Remember when the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men, it said that their children became gibborim, the mighty ones. Before the flood and after the flood, Nimrod is a gibor, a mighty one. In fact, we have a slogan, like Nimrod, a gibor before the Lord. Now, this is real super-duper important, so I want to stress it again because of its super-duper importitude. Genesis 10, 8, and 9. Cush begot Nimrod. He was the first gibor on the earth. He was the preeminent mighty man. doesn't mean the first because there were some before the flood. But he was the preeminent. He was the head of the post-flood mighty guys. He was a gibor hunter before Yahweh. Therefore the saying is like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. So there's a stress here that this Nimrod guy, he is a gibor, a mighty one. Scholars think that perhaps he's Gilgamesh. I'm sure you all remember Gilgamesh, right? Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Well, the one thing to remember is that they were both giants in the Mesopotamian epic. When I was in school, we read Homer, and we didn't read Gilgamesh. I think probably now Gilgamesh is read too. It's useful to read. It gives you something from the really ancient world about the flood and other stuff from a pagan perspective. But these are giants. Nimrod is probably a giant. We know that there were giants around, like the Anakim. And perhaps that's something of what this word Gibor connotes in that context. Well, what did Nimrod do? What is his great feat? That's right, he built the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel, Babel means the gate of heaven, gate of God. And the tower goes up to heaven. Now, Jacob is being made a gibir, a gibor. What's the next thing that's going to happen to Jacob? He's going to go out and encounter the true Tower of Babel with angels ascending and descending, and he's going to say, this is the gate of God, Babel. And so there's a strong connection here that the original guy who led the apostasy of the human race, Nimrod, is now being answered by a true Nimrod, a true man who will encounter the Tower of Babel, which he won't build. God builds it. God builds it down from heaven to the earth instead of man building it up from heaven to God. But he will be the one who will have an encounter at that place and set up a stone and put oil on it so the oil spreads down that stone the same way God's power and influence and grace spreads down that ladder from heaven. We'll get there, but I want to point it out to you now. Great one, Nimrod. Big theme here, hidden in your English text, you see. That's why you need me. You need me, because I can look at my Hebrew interlinear and my commentaries and say, hey, this is a very rare word, and it points right back to Nimrod and sets us up for Jacob to be a true Nimrod encountering a true Tower of Babel, and when we get to Genesis 28, we'll want to make some more contrast between the original Babel and the true Babel, the true house of God, true ladder to heaven. At any rate, point it out now. 
set us up for it. No, and I was not implying that we have to see either Nimrod or particularly Jacob as giants, just that there's some general, you know, it's kind of a general milieu of, these were really tough guys. The heroic founders. Nimrod is a heroic founder of the anti-world, and Jacob becomes a heroic founder of the true world. And Jacob founds his world through suffering, <laughs> because he's a type of Christ. But that's a good point. That clarifies things a bit. I'm glad you made the point. And the last pair here, those who curse you cursed, and those who bless you blessed. Of course, that's also fulfilled in Israel. So all these things get fulfilled. But this blessing is ambiguous, and it's ambiguous for a reason, and I guess I'll explain a little bit more, I'll try to camp on a bit more as we go. But let's just get started on it now. Here's the blessing of Abraham, and it comes down to Isaac. And this is all very positive. It's going to come on Jacob. All the good stuff. But Isaac has fallen into sin, and... He intends to destroy the Abrahamic covenant, and in fact, the Abrahamic covenant is dying at this point. Because he wants to give it all to Esau, and that will be the end of it if he does. So what Jacob inherits from Isaac is not just the positive, gracious kingdom that starts with Abraham. He also inherits Isaac's sinfulness. In a sense, the sins of Isaac are put on Jacob, and Jacob has to carry those sins and work them out. That's why Jacob is a type of Christ. Because not only the blessing of the Father is put on him, so that Jesus receives the blessing of the Father, this is my son, listen to him, but also all the sinfulness of the human race is put on Jesus, and he has to work it through and save us. Now, Jacob is getting both sides of this from Isaac. He's getting the positive stuff from Father Abraham. He's also getting the sinfulness of Isaac, who has replicated the fall of Adam. Remember what Isaac does. I mean, it's a food choice. And he makes himself God. And he says, treat me like God and bring sacrifices to me and feed me. That's what this whole story is about. He demands to be treated ritually the way Yahweh is treated. Bring food to me and I'll bless you. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to bring food and eat it before God and he'll bless us. Well, that's what... Isaac wants to be treated that way. And Isaac has made the wrong choice for food. And Isaac is calling good evil and evil good. He's perverting knowledge of good and evil. So Isaac is the Adamic sinner. And now Isaac's sins come on Jacob as well as the blessings of the father come on Jacob. Well, that means that this blessing of Isaac is ambiguous or it's two-sided. It's communicating both sides of it. So Isaac starts off inheriting the kingdom, just like Adam being put in the garden. And Isaac gets put in Gerar, which means circle or garden. Then Isaac falls, and now Isaac's sins come on to Jacob, and Jacob is going to have to work those sins out and bring about redemption from those sins. Now, this is why Jacob starts to go through Isaac-like experiences. For instance, being deceived when he's blind by his wife. And as a result of the deception, being stuck with a situation he can't alter. That's what happens to Isaac. Isaac's blind. An authority figure sends his son in to deceive him. Isaac says, well, this is done. I can't undo it. Jacob is completely in the dark. An authority figure sends Leah instead of Rachel in. 
Now we're married, we can't do anything about it. And that's just the first of a number of things that happened to Jacob that are like what happened to Isaac. And that's read, you see, as well, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now Jacob's being paid back for the sinful things he did to Isaac. No, that's not what's happening here. What's happening is Jacob is now bearing the consequences of Isaac's sin and he's working them out. And that's the way we will be exploring that as we continue with the Jacob narrative. But I want to point to it now because it's happening at this point. And that's why this blessing here is not quite right. Now, Isaac is going to bless him again at the beginning of chapter 28. And when he does it again, that's after Isaac repents. And when he does it again, Isaac's going to say it all right. Okay, He's going to use the sand of the seashore and stars of the heaven. He's going to use all the right language, the language that God used with Abraham. But here, the language is not quite on it. Let's look at that. This blessing was pointed for Esau, even though Jacob's the one who gets it. And it reveals something about Isaac's sinful state of mind. And this is where we ended last week, but now we'll go back and glance at some of these contrasts. It's very interesting to consider them. Commentators have pointed to this, and I think they're right. In Genesis 12, verse 3, the original blessing to Abraham, which Isaac gets and which Isaac is supposed to be passing on, it doesn't say, those who curse you will be cursed, those who bless you will be blessed. It says, I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, there are two changes there. Number one, the official blessing says those who bless you, those who curse you in that order. Isaac gets it backwards here. Second of all, and even more importantly, those who bless you, but the one who curses you. That's the blessing. There will be lots of people who will bless you, Abraham. Occasionally there will be somebody who curses you. Now it's those who curse you, those who bless you implies that you'll have lots of enemies, not just a few enemies. Well, that would seem to apply to Esau a little bit more. (laughs) Knowing what Esau's like, Esau's going to wind up with a lot of enemies, not just a few enemies. But this is not as positive a blessing, you see, as what God originally gave. The original blessing, which is supposed to be passed down now, says, Many friends, occasionally an enemy. The way it's being phrased here is, many enemies, many friends. The enemies come first. Well, there's a change, subtle, possibly you're making too much out of it. But I don't think so. I think that the whole point here is to notice that this is a blessing that's official. It's supposed to be passed down generation after generation. And the changes in it then become significant, especially when we know that there's a sinful state of mind here. And in a sense, that would fit Esau a little bit better because Esau is going to wind up as a violent man with lots of enemies and not just a few. Also, God originally states, I will bless those who bless you. Here this is in the passive voice. Those who bless you, may they be blessed. He could say, may God bless those who bless you. Or, God will bless those who bless you. Yahweh will bless those who bless you. But it's all put into this very neutral, passive voice language, like they use in the Air Force when I was in there. It is requested that. 
<laughs> Once you say, I'm telling you to do this. Uh, it is this. It is that. You know how bureaucraties is. It's always in the passive voice. They make it as impersonal as possible and take all human responsibility out of it. It's as if the requirement just drifted out of nowhere. You can't boss people around anymore. Well, this passive voice here kind of leaves God in the background, and you just wonder if Isaac is... You know, when we get estranged from God, it's harder to talk about God. He manages to get in the word Yahweh once here, and he uses the word Elohim once. But boy, when you're estranged from God, it's just kind of hard to talk about God. The word Jesus kind of sticks in your craw. But now, boy, listen to what he, when he gives the blessing again and does it right. May El Shaddai bless you, he says. Stronger language, I submit. So possibly there's something there, too. It's as if God's in the background. Second of all, we notice some of the things that are missing here. And here we turn to chapter 28, 3 and 4 and just see the contrasts. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you for you to inherit the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Verse 3, May El Shaddai bless you, make you bear fruit, make you many, that you become an army of peoples. This multitude of seed is not mentioned here in this first blessing. It's left off. Inheriting the land of Canaan, not mentioned here in this first blessing. Only after Isaac has been restored by Rebekah's righteous deception is he able to truly pass on the blessing of Abraham. And that's what Hebrews 11, verse 20, is talking about. I remember hearing Harold preach on this years and years ago, and I still have it marked in my Bible because he pointed this out. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. Well... The full blessing that Isaac issues by faith, and not in a sinful state of mind, but a blessing uttered in faith, is the blessing he gives in chapter 28, 3 and 4, after he's been restored. And the blessing that he gives to Esau by faith is the one that he gives after he trembles and repents. There are three blessings here. The blessing that's given to Jacob when Jacob is pretending to be Esau. Isaac is in a sinful state of mind. Then after he repents, he gives a blessing to Esau, and he gives another blessing to Jacob. Uh, so second and third blessings are the ones that Paul refers to in Hebrews. They're given by faith. This first one here is not given in a state of faith. He's trying to sneak around behind God's back. He's not trusting God at all. He's hoping to circumvent God, Isaac is, by giving this blessing to Esau on this occasion and being tricked into doing the wrong thing. So, this again, this first blessing here is ambiguous. It's designed for Esau. It comes to Jacob. It has elements of the Abrahamic covenant in it. It has distortions in it. It's just kind of like sinful Adam. Still the image of God, but now warped and perverted by sin. And that's what Jacob is getting. Jacob is now going to have to carry this situation that's put on him. And there are Esau themes here, the word Gibor for Esau, who is a Nimrod, he's a hunter. So to say, may you be a Gibir like Nimrod is entirely appropriate for Esau. 
Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that's what Esau is. He's a hunter-gatherer. But uh, now that's being put on Jacob. Jacob is going to be a new Nimrod, not as a hunter, but now as someone in connection with the Tower of Babel. And then there's a statement, May God give you from the fat of the earth. No reference to the land of sojourning is promised to Abraham, although it's the same word for earth and land. It's a little bit more nebulous here. Now you could say to yourself, Hmm, well maybe... Maybe Isaac never intended to take away the blessing from Jacob. Maybe all along this is just some nebulous blessing for Esau, and he had in the back of his mind that he was going to give the official Abrahamic blessing to Jacob. What do you think of that? Maybe Isaac was really a pretty good guy here, and he intended to give the full blessing to Jacob. And I've been dead wrong all this time. <laughs> well, you know that can't be true. Well, let's think about it. I mean, that introduces the possibility. Maybe Rebecca misunderstood things entirely. Maybe all Isaac was going to do was give a blessing to Esau, but he was reserving the Abrahamic covenant blessing for Jacob, and he planned to give it to him later on. So Rebecca misinterpreted the situation. This whole deception was unnecessary. Well, that might cross your mind. And let's just let that cross right straight back out of our mind, because what happens next makes it plain that that's not the case. Isaac says, oh, somebody came in here and he received the blessing and he's blessed. And Esau says, well, is there nothing left? And apparently there is nothing left. So it would be wrong to say that Isaac was just intending to give a general blessing to Esau here and he was keeping back a bunch of stuff to give to Jacob. But he didn't keep anything back. So, we can dismiss that as a possibility. And go back to what we said right along. Isaac intends to take what he understands the blessing as and give it to Esau. But in his sin, his understanding of the blessing has become somewhat distorted. And it's that somewhat distorted form that he gives to Jacob at this point. He gives a purer form of it for a few days later in chapter 28. So, kind of wrap up some of the Rebecca stuff here. Well, we have to wrap up Rebecca again, but... We'll start to wrap her up here. This is a somewhat false and partial blessing. It's not the true or full blessing of Abraham at all, which comes in chapter 28. Now this adds another important dimension to the narrative. And we have to uncover it. All the elements are here to figure it out, but we have to uncover it. And to uncover it, we need to go back and think about the situation and put ourselves there. God gives us the ability to do this, and he gives us all the facts to do it. So if we want to go beyond the ABCs of the text, we've got to do it. This has been going on for 77 years. Out on Sunset Strip, there in Canaan. 77 years, Rebecca has lived with the fact that Isaac chooses the wrong son. I mean, she had come into this expecting to be the mother of the seed, she loves Abraham. Isn't he great? She talks to him on the phone all the time. And she's so excited to be married to Isaac, who is the seed. Her children will grow up and they'll be in the covenant. All of this is being ruined. It's being ruined for 77 years. She's had a lot of time to think about this situation here and to figure out what to do. This doesn't just sneak up on us overnight. 
It's not as if Isaac had been doing right for 76 years as regards these two sons, and then all of a sudden, he goes nuts and flips. No. This situation has been there for a long time. Jacob has been raised in this dysfunctional situation for a long time. For 77 years, he's been raised in a situation where his father prefers one child over the other. And Jacob is going to tend to do the same kind of thing. Because if you grow up that way, it's what you tend to do yourself, unless you work it through. He has to work it through. In terms of our story here, you have to think about the consciousness of these people. Rebecca wants Jacob to receive the true blessing of Abraham. That's what Rebecca wants Jacob to get, the true blessing of Abraham. Isaac is the one who has it. Now, she knows this isn't an absolute thing. If Isaac were to be killed before he could give the blessing, God would find a way to pass it on down to Jacob. She's got that figured out. But in terms of the normal operation of things, this is what she's got to live with. Isaac, therefore, should be the one to give this true blessing. Isaac needs to give the blessing of Abraham to Jacob. But Isaac is in no spiritual condition to do so. There's Rebecca's problem. I want Jacob to receive the blessing. Isaac needs to give the blessing. But Isaac is in no spiritual condition to do so. He's in sin. Part of it is that he intends to give it to Esau. But that's just a sign that his whole spiritual state is wrong. And in that condition, can he really give the blessing of Abraham? Now, what do you do in that situation? Well, Rebecca has to figure out some way to cause Isaac to repent so Isaac can give the true blessing. And she does. She and God do. How much of this was her doing and how much was the Spirit of God's? We can interview her in the world to come and find out. But she certainly is moved to concoct a very sophisticated scheme here, which has the effect of shattering Isaac and causing him to repent so that he becomes able to pass on the true Abrahamic blessing. Rebecca knows that God can give the blessing apart from anything Isaac does, but she wants to restore her husband. That's part of what she wants to do. She cannot know in advance what Isaac will pronounce, but she hopes that if he is truly humble, he'll do what's right. There's three possibilities here. If she can work it out so that Isaac is humbled, then she hopes he'll do what's right. Because she knows that this is going to be found out. I mean, look, uh, it was not in her mind or in Jacob's mind that this deception could be carried on forever. Rebecca knew full well that shortly after the blessing was given to Jacob, Esau would show up and ask for a blessing. And then Isaac would figure it all out. So she knew this would happen. She has to be hoping that Isaac will respond the right way. She couldn't have been this dumb. There's no way. No human being would come up with a plan like this and then think, oh, well, we'll trick the old man and he'll be fooled for the next 20 years. No, no, he's going to find out. He's going to find out immediately. Because Esau will come back in soon and then they'll all find out what happened. So she knows that Isaac is going to find out about it, and she knows that Isaac's going to be mad, or something's going to happen. Isaac is not going to like it. Something's going to happen in Isaac's consciousness when he finds out what happened. She knows that. She can plan that. You can count on it. If I commit adultery with my wife's best friend, I can count on the fact that my wife is going to find out about it. You have to be really dumb to think you wouldn't. At some point, people find out, well, this is much closer to the scene. 
She knows he's going to find out. He's going to find out real fast, and he's not going to like it. Something's going to happen here. It has to be worked out. So, she knows this is part of the plan. If Isaac gives the true blessing to Jacob and honors it later on after being humbled, that's a good outcome. It's not quite what happens. Isaac gives kind of a messy blessing. B. If Isaac gives a false and partial blessing to Jacob and then is humbled, he will later on give him the true blessing, and that's a good outcome. And that's what happens. That's what happens. So B is what happens here. See, if Isaac is enraged and refuses to be humbled, then Rebekah will take Jacob's curse, and God will pass on the blessing to Jacob apart from Isaac. Remember, she says, I'll take the curse. There is no curse, so she doesn't have to take one. But she says, if there is one, because she knows, she knows Isaac's going to find out about it. Isaac might harden his heart and blow up and curse everybody. She says, well, if that happens, let the curse come on me, the blessing will still come on you. It's just the psychology of it, what is in her mind, the greatness of this woman here as she figures out what to do. Now that leads to one other insight here, and that's really what I have as number four. Rebecca might have said, look, your father intends to give all this stuff to Esau, but I know that's not going to work. Because God is sovereign, and he has said you're to inherit. So don't worry about it, son. When Esau comes back and crows and says that Isaac gave him the blessing, don't worry about it, Jacob. Because God will work it out. The Lord will undertake. If she had said that, that would have been an act of faith, trusting God. But there's one thing that would not have happened if she had done that. In other words, if Rebekah had said, Jacob, Isaac's going to bless Esau, give him the covenant blessing. I don't want you to worry about it, son. God told me right along that you're supposed to receive it. He will work it out. We don't have to do anything here. Just play along because God has his ways of working stuff out. Well, if she had done that, that's exactly what would have happened. Jacob would have received the blessing. There's one thing that would not have happened, and what's that? Isaac would never have been forced to repent. See, God would have worked a way to get the blessing to Jacob no matter what. But Isaac would not have repented. So what Rebecca does here, in a sense... The bottom line is she creates a situation to cause her husband to repent of his sin. Jacob would have gotten blessed either way. But she works it out so the blessing comes in the normal and proper way and so that her husband repents of his sin. Now that's the bottom line as far as I can see in the passage. That's what makes everything fit together. She's working to restore her husband so that he can do the blessing the right way. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. 
And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.